0: This is a Bulldog Radio Podcast. Spectrovision. I am your host, Gabriel Walker. Today I have two horror stories for you from some of my favorite horror authors. They are H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe, two authors from about the same time frame, but varied wildly in their style. H.P. Lovecraft uh, eventually essentially made a new genre of horror called Lovecraftian, which is kind of cosmic horror and deals a lot with madness and insanity. Now, Edgar Allan Poe writes sometimes of the supernatural, but never really gets into anything very science fiction. A lot of his work is of monsters of men versus monsters of monsters. So, we'll start with Edgar Allan Poe today, with a tell tale heart, narrated by myself. Drew, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been and am, but why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all, was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe. How healthily, how calmly. I can tell you my whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain. But once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there were none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think... I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually... I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of that I forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Mad know nothing. You should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution. With what foresight. With what dissimulation. I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man. Every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put a dark lantern, all closed, closed that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it, slowly, very, very slowly. So that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head in the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Would a madman be so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously oh, so cautiously, cautiously for the hinges creaked and I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. I did this for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone inquiring how he passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed to suspect, that every night, just at twelve, I looked upon him in his sleep. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than mine. Never before, that night, had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my own sagacity. I could barely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me. For he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was black as pitch with the thick darkness. For the shutters were closed, fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door. And I kept pushing it on, steadily, steadily. I had my head in. "'and was about to open the lantern "'when my thumb slipped on the tin fastening "'and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, "'Who's there?' "'I kept quite still and said nothing. "'For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, "'and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. "'He was still sitting in the bed listening, "'just as I have done, night after night.' hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or grief. Oh, no! It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it had welled up from my own bosom, deepening, with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I think I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and pitied him. Although I chuckled at heart, I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had ever been growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow of my bones, but I could not see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew the sound well, too; it was the beating of the old man's heart; it increased my fury. As the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet... For some minutes longer I refrained and stood still, but the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would uh, be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. Now, this, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs that I took up three planks from the flooring into the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatsoever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all, (laughs) ha, and when, and when, I made an end to these labors, it was still four o'clock, dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity, as The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, and search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed him his treasures, secure and undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room. and desired them to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity, of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I found myself getting pale, and I wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained confidence and gained... Until, at length, I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I grew very pale, but I talked more fluently, and with a heightened tone. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise rose steadily. I arose and argued about trifles in the high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why? Why would it not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore, I swung the chair upon which I'd been sitting and grated upon the boards, but the noise arose over all continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and the men still chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not And now, again, hark! Louder! 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 Villains! I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here! Here! It is the beating of his hideous heart. This has always been one of my favorite Edgar Allan Poe stories. Mostly because I... Really, really love the Vincent Price rendition of this. Actually, Vincent Price and uh, Christopher Lee do really amazing um, narrations of this story, and uh, it always just chills me to the bone. You hear the narrator trying to explain why he's not mad, but Proves that he is mad that he hears the beating of the heart uh, While no one else hears it um, I guess you have to be mad to kill somebody For their eye Not really for any reason, but especially for their eye Next up we have Pikmin's Model by H.P. Lovecraft also narrated by myself. You needn't think I'm crazy, Elliot. Plenty of others have queerer prejudices than this. Why don't you laugh at Oliver's grandfather, who won't ride in a motor? If I don't like that damned subway, it's my own business, and we got here more quickly anyhow than in the taxi. We'd have to walk up the hill from Park Street if we'd taken the car. I know I'm more nervous than I was when you saw me last year, but you don't need to hold a clinic over it. There's plenty of reason, God knows, and I fancy I'm lucky to be sane at all. Why, third degree? You didn't use to be so inquisitive. Well, if you must hear it, I don't know why you shouldn't. Maybe you ought to, anyhow, for you kept writing me like a grieved parent when you heard I'd begun to cut the art club and keep away from Pikmin. Now that he's disappeared and I go around to the club once in a while, but my nerves aren't what they were. No, I don't know what's become of Pikmin, and I don't like to guess. You might have surmised I had some inside information when I dropped him, and That's why I don't want to think that he's gone. Let the police find what they can. It won't be much, judging from the fact that they don't know yet of the old North End place he hired under the name of Peters. I'm not sure I could find it again myself. Not that I'd ever try, and even in broad daylight. Yes, I do know, or am afraid I know, why he maintained it. I'm coming to that, and I think you'll understand before I'm through why I don't tell the police. They would ask me to guide them, but I couldn't go back there even if I knew the way. There was something there, and now I can't use the subway, or, and you may as well have your laugh at this too, go into cellars anymore. I think you should have known I didn't drop Pickman for the same silly reasons that fussy old woman like Dr. Reed or Joe Minot or Bosworth did. Morbid art doesn't shock me, and when a man has the genius of Pickman had I feel it an honor to know him, no matter what direction his work takes. Boston never had a greater painter than Richard Upton Pickman. I said it at first, and I say it still, and I never swerved an inch, either. When he showed that ghoul feeding, that, you remember, was when Minot cut him. You know it takes profound art, and profound insight into the nature to turn out stuff like pigments. Any magazine cover, hack, can splash paint around wildly and call it a nightmare or witch's sabbath, or a portrait of the devil. But only a great painter can make such things that really scare or ring true. That's because only a real artist knows the actual anatomy of the terrible or the physiology of fear. The exact sort of lines and proportions that connect up with latent instincts or hereditary memories of fright and the proper color contrast and lighting effects to stir the dormant sense of strangeness. I don't have to tell you why a fuseli brings a shiver while a cheap ghost story frontispiece makes us laugh. There's something those fellows catch beyond life that they're able to make us catch for a second. Doré had it, Simi has it, And of Chicago has it. And Pikmin had it, as no man ever had before. Or, I hope to heaven, ever will again. Don't ask me what it is they see. You know, in ordinary art, there is all the difference in the world between the vital, breathing things drawn from nature, or the models and the artificial truck that commercial small fry reel off in a bare studio by rule. Well, I should say that the really weird artist has a kind of vision which makes models, or, or what summons up what amounts to actual scenes from the spectral world he lives in. Anyhow, he manages to turn up results that differ from the Pretender's mince pie dreams, in just about the same way the Life Painter's results differ from the concoctions of a correspondent school cartoonist. If I had ever seen what Pikmin saw, but no, here, let's have a drink before we get any deeper. Gad, I wouldn't be alive if I'd ever seen what that man, if he was a man, saw. You recall that Pikmin's forte was faces. I don't believe anybody since Goya could put so much sheer hell into a set of features or twist of an expression. And before Goya, you might have gone back to the medieval chaps who did the gargoyles and the chimeras of Notre Dame and Mont Saint School. They believed all sorts of things. And maybe they saw all sorts of things, too, for the Middle Ages had some curious faces. I remember your asking Pickman once, yourself, the year before you went away. Wherever in thunder he got his ideas and visions. Wasn't that a nasty laugh he gave you? It was partly because of that laugh that Reed dropped him. Reed, you know, had just taken up comparative pathology and was full of pompous quote, inside stuff about the biological or the evolutionary significance of this or that mental or physical symptom. He said Pickman repelled him more and more every day and almost frightened him towards the last, that the fellow's features and expressions were slowly developing in a way that he didn't like, in a way that wasn't human. He had a lot to talk about diet and he said Pickman must be abnormal and eccentric to the last degree. I suppose if you told Reed if you or he had any correspondence over it, that he'd let Pigman's paintings get on his nerves or harrow up his imagination. I know I told him that myself. But keep in mind that I didn't drop Pigman for anything like this. On the contrary, my admiration for him kept growing. For that, ghoul's feeding was a tremendous achievement. As you know, the club couldn't... wouldn't exhibit it. And the Museum of Fine Arts wouldn't accept it as a gift, and I can add that no one would buy it. So Pickman had it right up in his house until he went. Now his father has it in Salem, and you know Pickman comes of old Salem stock and had a witch ancestor hanged in 1692. I got into the habit of calling on Pikmin quite often, especially after I began making notes for a monograph on weird art. Probably it was his work which put the idea in my head and anyhow I I found him on a mine of data and suggestions when I came in to develop it. He showed me all the paintings and drawings he had about, including some pen and ink sketches that would, I verily believe, have gotten him kicked out of the club if many of the members had seen them. Before long, I was pretty nearly a devotee, and would listen for hours like a schoolboy to art theorists and philosophic speculations wild enough to qualify him for for the Danvers Asylum. My hero worship, coupled with the fact that people generally were commencing to have less and less to do with him, made him get very confidential with me. And one evening he hinted that if I were fairly closed-mouthed and none too squeamish, he might show me something rather unusual, something a bit stronger than he had in the house. "'You know,' he said— There are things that wouldn't do for Newberry Street. Things that are out of place here. and couldn't be conceived here anyhow. It is my business to catch the overtones of the soul. And you wouldn't find those in the Pernivaux set of artificial streets on made land. Back Bay isn't Boston. And it isn't anything yet. Because it's had no time to pick up memories and attract local spirits. If there were any ghosts here, they're tame ghosts of a salt marsh and a shallow cove, and I want human ghosts. The ghosts of beings highly organized enough to have looked on hell, and known the meaning of what they saw. He continued, The place for an artist is to live on the north end. If any estetate were sincere, he'd put up with the slums and for the sake of the mass traditions. God, man, don't you realize that places like that weren't really made but actually grew? Generation after generation lived and felt and died there. And in the days when people weren't afraid to live, feel and die. Don't you know there was a, a mill on Cops Hill in 1632 and that half the present streets were laid out by 1650. I can show you houses that have stood two centuries and a half more. Houses that have witnessed what it would make a modern house crumble into powder. What do moderns know of life and the forces behind it? You call the Salem witchcraft a delusion. But I'll wage my four times great-grandmother could have told you things. They hanged her on Gallows Hill. With cotton mother, looking scantimoniously on. Mother, damn him, was afraid somebody might succeed in kicking free of this accursed cage of monotony. I wish someone had laid a spell on him, or sucked his blood in the night. I I can show you a house where he lived in and I can show you another one that He was afraid to enter in the spite of all his fine, bold talk. He knew things. He didn't dare put in his stupid Magnalia or that puerile wonders of the invisible world. Look here. Do you know the whole North End once had a set of tunnels that kept certain people in touch with each other's houses? And the burying ground and the sea? let them prosecute and persecute the above ground. Things went on every day that they couldn't reach, and voices laughed at night that they couldn't place. Pickman continued, why man, out of the 10 surviving houses built before 1700 and not moved since, I'll wager that in eight, I can show you something queer in the cellar. There's hardly a month that you don't read of workmen finding bricked-up arches or and wells leading to nowhere in this or that old place as it comes down. You could see one near Henchman Street from the Elevated last year. There were witches. And what their spell summoned? Pirates. And what they brought in from the sea? Smugglers, privateers. And I tell you, people knew how to live. And how to enlarge the bounds of life in the old times. This wasn't the only world a bold and wise man could know. Fah! And to think of today in contrast with such pale pink brains that even a club of supposed artists gets shuddered and convulsions if a picture goes beyond the feelings of a Beacon Street tea table. The only saving grace of the present is that it's too damn stupid to question the past very closely. What do maps and records and guidebooks really tell of the North End? I guess I'll guarantee to lead you to 30 or 40 alleys and networks of alleys and then north of Prince Street that aren't suspected by ten living beings outside of the foreigners that swarm them. And what do those Dagos know of their meaning? No, Thurber, those ancient places are dreaming gorgeously and overflowing with wonder and terror and escapes from the commonplace, and yet there's not a living soul to understand or profit by them. Or rather, there is only one living soul, for I haven't been digging around in the past for nothing. See here, you're interested in this sort of thing. What if I told you I've got another studio up there, where I can catch the night spirit of antique horror and paint things that I I couldn't even think in, in Newberry Street? Naturally, I don't tell those cursed maids at the club with Reed, damn him, whispering even as it is that I'm sort of a monster. Bound down the toboggan of reverse evolution, yes, Thurber, I decided long ago that I must paint terror as well as beauty from life. And so I did some exploring in places where I had reason to know terror lives. I've got a place that I don't believe three living Nordic men besides myself have ever seen he continued it isn't so very far from the elevated as distance goes but it's centuries away as the soul goes I took it because of the queer old brick well in the cellar one of the sort I told you about the shack's almost tumbling down so no one uh, else would live there and I'd hate to tell you how little I pay for it the windows are boarded up, and but I like that. All the better, since I don't want daylight for what I do. I paint in the cellar, where the inspiration is the thickest. But I've got other rooms, furnished on the ground floor. A Sicilian owns it, and I've hired it under the name of Peters. He continued, Now if you're game, I'll take you there tonight. I think you'd enjoy the pictures... For, as I said, I've let myself go a bit there. It's no vast tour, and I sometimes do it on foot, for I don't want to attract the attention of a taxi in such a place. We can take the shuttle at the south station for Battery Street. And after that, the walk isn't much. Well, Elliot, there wasn't much for me to do after that harangue, but to keep myself from running instead of walking to the first vacant cab we could sight. We changed to the elevated at South Station, and and at about 12 o'clock we'd climbed down the steps of Battery Street and struck along the old waterfront past Constitution Wharf. I didn't keep track of the cross streets, and I can't tell you yet which it was that we turned up. But I know it was not Greeno lane When we did turn, it was to climb through the deserted length of the oldest and dirtiest alley I've ever seen in my life. With crumbling-looking gables, broken, small-paned windows, and archaic chimneys that stood out, half-disintegrated, against the moonlit sky. I don't believe that there were three houses in sight that hadn't been standing in Cotton Mather's time. Certainly, I glimpsed at least two with an overhang, and once I thought I saw a peaked roof line of the almost forgotten pre-Gamrel type, though antiquarians tell us that there are none left in Boston. From that alley, which had a dim light, we turned to the left into an equally silent and still narrower alley, with no light at all and in a minute made what I think was an obtuse angled bend tor- towards the right in the dark. Not long after this, Pickman produced a flashlight and revealed an antediluvian ten-paneled door that looked damnably worm-eaten. Unlocking it, he ushered me into a barren hallway with what was once a splendid dark oak panelling simple of course but thrillingly suggestive of the times of andros and phipps and the witchcraft then he took me through a door on the left lighted an oil lamp and told me to make myself at home now elliot i'm what the man in the street would call fairly hard-boiled but i'll confess that what i saw on the walls of the room gave me a bad turn they were his pictures you know the ones he couldn't paint or even show at Newberry Street. And he was right when he said he had let himself go. Here, have another drink. I, I need one anyhow. There's no use in trying to tell you what they were like. Because the awful, the blasphemous horror, the unbelievable loathsomeness of the moral filter came from the simple touches quite beyond the power of words to classify. There were none of the exotic technique you'd see in Sydney Syme or none of the trans-Saturnian landscapes and the lunar fungi that Clark Ashton Smith uses to freeze the blood. The backgrounds were mostly old churchyards, deep woods, cliffs by the sea. Brick tunnels, ancient paneled rooms, or, or simple vaults of masonry. Cops Hill Burying Ground, which could not have been very many blocks away from this very house, was his favorite scene. The madness and monstrosity lay in the figures in the foreground, for Pickman's morbid art was preeminently one of the most demonic portraiture. These figures were seldom completely human, but often approached humanity in a varying degree. Most of the bodies, while roughly bipedal, had a forward slumping and a vaguely canine cast. The texture of the majority uh, was a kind of unpleasant rubberiness. I can see them now. Their occupations, well, don't ask me to be too precise. They were usually feeding, and I don't know on what. They were sometimes shown in groups in cemeteries or underground passages, and often appeared to be in battle over their prey, or rather, their treasure trove. And what damnable expressiveness Pickman sometimes gave the sightless faces of that carnal booty. Occasionally, the... Things were shown leaping through the open windows at night or squatting on chests of sleepers worrying at their throats. One cabinet showed a ring of them baying about a hanged witch on Gallows Hill whose dead face held a close kinship to theirs. But don't get the idea it was all this hideous business of theme and setting which struck me faint. I'm not a three-year-old kid and... I'd seen much like this before. It was the faces, Elliot. Those accursed faces. They leered and slavered out of the canvas with the very breath of life. By God, man, I verily believe they were alive. That nauseous wizard had waked the fires of hell and pigment, and his brush had been a nightmare-spawning wand. Give me that decanter, Elliot. I need a drink. <sighs> There was one thing called The Lesson, heaven pity me, that I ever saw it. Listen, can you... Can you fancy a squatting circle of nameless dog-like things in a churchyard, teaching a small child how to feed like themselves? The price of a changeling, I suppose, if you know the old myth about weird people that leave their spawn in cradles in exchange for the human babies they steal. Pikmin was showing what happens to those stolen babies, how they grow up, and I began to see a hideous relationship in the faces of the human and the non-human figures. He was, in all his gradations of morbidity between the frankly non-human and the degradedly human, establishing a sardonic linkage in evolution. The dog things were developed from mortals. And no sooner had I wondered what he made of their own young, as left with mankind in the form of changelings, than my eye caught a picture embodying the very thought. It was that of an ancient Puritan interior. A heavily beamed room with lattice windows, a settle and clumsy seventeenth-century furniture, with the family sitting about while the father read from the scriptures. Every face but one showed nobility and reverence, but that one reflected the mockery of the pit. It was that of a young man in years, and no doubt belonged to the a supposed son of that pious father, but in essence it was kin to the unclean things. It was their changeling, and in a spirit of supreme irony, Pickman had given the features of a very perceptible resemblance to his own. By this time, Pickman had lighted a lamp in the adjoining room and was politely holding open the door for me, asking me if I would care to see his modern studies, as he called it. I hadn't been able to give him much of my opinions, I was too speechless with fright and loathing, but I think he fully understood and felt highly complimented. And now I want to assure you again, Elliot, that I'm no mollycoddle to scream at anything that shows a bit of departure from the usual. I'm a middle-aged and decently sophisticated, and I guess you saw enough of me in France to know that I'm not easily knocked about. Remember, too, that I had just recovered my wind and gotten used to those frightful pictures which turned colonial New England into a kind of annex of hell. Well, in spite of this, that... The next room forced a real scream out of me and I had a clutch at the doorway to keep from keeling over. The other chamber had shown a pack of ghouls and witches overrunning the world of our forefathers. But this one brought the horror into our own daily life. How that man could paint. There was a study called Subway Accident, in which a flock of those vile things were clambering up some unknown catacomb through a crack in the floor of the Boysland Street Subway and attacking a crowd of people on the platform. Another showed a dance on Cops Hill among the tombs with the background of today. Then there were a n- number of cellar views, with monsters creeping in through holes and rifts in the masonry and grinning as they squatted behind barrels of or furnaces and waited for the first victim to descend the stairs. One disgusting canvas seemed to do one disgusting canvas seemed to depict a vast cross section of Beacon Hill with ant-like armies of mephitic monsters squeezing themselves through burrows that honeycombed the ground. Dances in the modern cemeteries were freely pictured, and and another conception somehow shocked me more than all the rest. A scene in an unknown vault where scores of the beasts crowded about one who held a well-known Boston guidebook and was evidently reading aloud. All were pointing to a certain passage, and every face seemed so distorted with epileptic and reverberant laughter that I almost thought I had heard the fiendish echoes. The title of that picture was Holmes, Lowell, and Longfellow Lied, Buried in Mount Ashburn. As I gradually steadied myself, and got readjusted to this second room of devilry and morbidity, I began to analyze some of the points in my sickening loathing. In the first place, I said to myself, These things repelled me because of the utter inhumanity and the callous cruelty they showed in Pikmin. The fellow must be a relentless enemy of all mankind to take such glee in the torture of the brain and the flesh, and the degradation of the mortal tenement. In the second place, they terrified because of their very greatness. Their art was the art of the convinced. When we saw the pictures we saw of the demons themselves, and were afraid of them, the queer part was that Pikmin got none of this power from the use of selectiveness or the bizarre. Nothing was blurred, distorted, or conventionalized. Outlines were sharp and lifelike. And details were almost painfully defined. And the faces. It was not any mere artist's interpretation that we saw. It was pandemonium itself. Crystal clear and stark objectivity. That was it, by heaven. The man was not a fantastery or a romanticist at all. He did not even try to give us the churning, prismatic, ephemera of dreams, but coldly and sardonically reflected some stable, mechanistic, and well-established horror world which he saw fully and brilliantly, squarely, and unfalteringly. God knows what the world could have been, or where he ever glimpsed the blasphemous shapes that loped and trotted and crawled through it. But whatever the baffling source of his images, one thing was plain. Pikmin was, in every sense, in conception and in execution, a thorough, painstaking, and almost scientific realist. My host was now leading the way down to the cellar, to his actual studio, and I braced myself for some hellish effects among the unfinished canvases. As we reached the bottom of the damp stairs, he turned his flashlight to a corner of the large open space at hand, revealing the circular brick curb, what was evidently a great well in the earthen floor. We walked nearer, and I saw that it must be five feet across, with walls a good foot thick and at some six inches above ground level solid work of the seventeenth century, or was I mistaken, that Pickman said was the kind of thing he had been talking about, an aperture of the network of tunnels that used to undermine the hill. I noticed idly that it didn't seem to be bricked up, and that a heavy disk of wood formed the apparent cover. Thinking of the things which this well must have connected with, if. Pickman's wild hints had not been mere rhetoric. I shivered slightly, then, then turned to follow him up a step through a narrow door into a room of fair size, provided with a wooden floor and furnished as a studio. The acetylene, an acetylene gas outfit gave the light necessary for work. The unfinished pictures on the easels or propped against the walls were as ghastly as the finished ones upstairs, and showed me the painstaking methods of the artist. Scenes were blocked out with extreme care, and penciled guidelines told of the minute exactitude which Pickman used in getting the right perspective and proportions. The man was great. I say it even now, knowing as much as I do. A large camera on a table Excited my notice. And Pickman told me that he used it in taking scenes for the backgrounds. So that he might paint them from the photographs in the studio. Instead of carting his outfit around town for this or that view. He thought a photograph was quite as good as an actual scene or a model for sustained work. He declared he employed them regularly. There was something very disturbing, about the nauseous sketches and half-finished monstrosities that leered from every side of the room. And when Pikmin suddenly unveiled a huge canvas on the side away from the light, I could not, for my life, keep back a loud scream, the second one I had emitted that night. It echoed and echoed through the dim vaultings of that ancient and nitrous cell, and I had to choke back a flood of reaction, and that threatened to burst as hysterical laughter. Merciful Creator, Elliot. But I don't know how much was real, and how much was feverish fancy. It doesn't seem to me that Earth could hold a dream like that. It was a colossal and nameless blasphemy. With glaring red-held and bony claws, a thing that had been a man, gnawing at its head as a child nibbles at a stick of candy. Its position was kind of a crouch, and as one looked, one felt that at any moment it might drop its present prey and seek a juicier morsel. But damn it all, it wasn't even the fiendish subject that made such an immortal fountainhead of all panic. Not that, nor the dog-face with its pointed ears, bloodshot eyes, flat nose, and drooling lips. It wasn't the scaly claws, nor the mold-caked body, nor the half-hoofed feet. None of these, though any one of them might have well driven an excitable man to madness. It was the technique, Elliot. The cursed, the impious, the unnatural technique. And as I am a living being, I never elsewhere saw the actual breath of life so infused into a canvas. The monster was there, it glared and gnawed and gnawed and glared, and I knew that only a suspension of nature's laws could ever let a man paint a thing like that without a model. Without some glimpse of the netherworld which no mortal, unsold to the fiend, has ever had. Pinned with a thumbtack to a vacant part of the canvas, w- was a piece of paper now badly curled up. Probably, I thought, a photograph from which Pikmin meant to paint a background as hideous as the nightmare it was to enhance. I reached out to Uncurl it and look at it, and suddenly I saw Pikmin start as if shot. He had been listening with peculiar intensities ever since my shocked scream had waked unaccustomed echoes in the dark cellar and now he seemed struck with fright which, though not comparable to my own, had in more of the physical than the spiritual. He drew a revolver and motioned me to silence, then stepped out of the main cellar and closed the door behind him. I think I was paralyzed for an instant, imitating Pikmin's listening. I fancy I heard a faint scurrying somewhere, and a series of squeals or bleats in a direction I I couldn't determine. I thought of huge rats and shuddered. Then there came a subdued sort of clatter which somehow set me all in goose flesh. A furtive groping of clatter that, though I can't attempt to convey what I mean in words, it was like a heavy wood falling on stone or brick. Wood on brick. What did that make me think of? It came again louder. There was a vibration, as if the wood had fallen further than it had fallen before, and after that followed a sharp grating noise. A shouted gibberish from Pikmin and the deafening discharge of all six chambers of the revolver, fired spectacularly as a lineman fired spectacularly. Fired spectacularly as a lion tamer might fire in the air for effect. A muffled squeal or squawk, and a thud. Then more wood and brick grating, a pause, and the opening of the door, at which I will confess I started vehemently, violently. The Pikmin reappeared with his smoking weapon, cursing the bloated rats infested the ancient wall. The deuce knows what they eat, Thurber, he grinned and said, for those archaic tunnels touched the graveyard and the witch den and the seacoast. But whatever it is, they must have run short, for they were devilishly anxious to get out. Your yelling stirred them up, I fancy. Better to be cautious in these old places. Our rodent friends are... "'The one drawback, though, I sometimes think they're a positive asset, by the way, of atmosphere and color,' he said. "'Well, Elliot, it was the end of the night adventure. "'Pickman had promised to show me the place, and heaven knows he had done that. "'He led me out of the tangle of alleys in another direction. "'It seems for when we sighted a lamppost we were in a half familiar street with a monotonous rows of mingled tenement blocks and old houses charter street it turned out to be but i was too flustered to notice where we hit it we were too late for the elevated and walked back downtown through hanover street i remember that walk we switched from tremont up beacon and Pikmin left me at the corner of Joy where I turned off. I never spoke to him again. Why did I drop him? Don't be impatient. Wait till I ring for coffee. We've had enough of the other stuff, but I for one need something. No, it wasn't the paintings. Not the paintings I saw in that place, though I swear they were enough to get him ostracized for nine-tenths of the homes and clubs in Boston. And I guess you wouldn't wonder why I have to steer clear of subways and cellars. It was something I found in my coat the next morning. You know, the curled-up paper tacked to that frightful canvas in the cellar, the thing I thought was a photograph, of some scene that he meant to use as a background for that monster. That last scare had come while I was reaching to uncurl it, and it seems I had vacantly crumpled it into my pocket. But here's the coffee. Take it, Black Elliot, if you are wise. Yes, that paper was the reason I dropped Pikmin. Richard Upton Pikmin. The greatest artist I have ever known, and the foulest being that ever leaped the bounds of life into the pits of myth and madness. Elliot, old Reed was right. He wasn't strictly human. Either he was born in some strange shadow or he had found a way to unlock the forbidden gate. It's all the same now, for he's gone, back into the fabulous darkness he loved to haunt. Don't ask me to explain or even conjecture about what I burned. Don't ask me either what lay behind that mole-like scrambling Pickman was so keen to pass off as rats. There are secrets, you know, which might have come down from old Salem times. And Cotton Mother tells even stranger things. You know how damned lifelike Pickman's paintings were? How we all wondered where he got those faces? Well, that paper wasn't a photograph of any background after all. What it showed was simply the monstrous being he had painted on that awful canvas. It was the model he was using, and its background was merely the wall of the cellar studio in minute detail. But by God, Elliot, it was a photograph. It was a photograph of that monster. Now this is one of the more, I guess, lighter stories in Lovecraft's repertoire, uh, especially in terms of insanity and the, uh, the main character, um, he doesn't really go too mad except for not wanting to go in cellars in the subway, which I guess in some circumstances that can be kind of crazy, but, uh... Lovecraft, in a lot of his other stories, really, really gets deep into the insanity of his main characters, and the unknowable, and things, if you you learn the unknowable, you go crazy, and you go mad, and Cthulhu gets you. So, that's going to be the end of the episode tonight. I want to thank all the artists who put their music out there in the creative commons that I can use them and, and uh, bring you this, this uh, podcast. Without their, their music and atmospheres, the podcast really wouldn't be the same. So I want to give them a big shout out. And again, if you have any stories or poetry or anything that you'd like read on this show, please email that to spectravisionpod at gmail.com. You can also tweet at the show using the hashtag SpectraVision, or you can find Bulldog Radio on Facebook at Bulldog Radio. You can find it on Instagram and Twitter at Bulldog Radio FSU. Please like, comment, and subscribe. Consider giving us a five-star review. Those really go a long way to gaining more listeners. And if you like the show, please share it. Um, I'd love to get more listeners. And always remember, dear listener, to keep your mind's eye wide open. And until next time, this is Spectra Vision.